From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. How many people have been taught their whole lives to trust the experts? My guess is that it's probably all of us. And while experts can be helpful in a lot of situations, they can often get in the way of innovation. You're probably thinking, how's that possible? That's my point exactly. The problem with experts is that they also know what's not possible. They're limited by their expertise, by boundary conditions about what works and what doesn't. But innovation isn't about boundary conditions, and it isn't about best practices. It's about going beyond the box. It's about doing something that's never been done before. In fact, innovation may be one of the only domains where lacking expertise actually gives you a competitive advantage. On today's episode, we see this theory in action as I talk to Kenton Lee, a self-admitted non-expert and founder of Because International, the nonprofit that distributes his invention, The Shoe That Grows. As you'll learn more about during this episode, The Shoe That Grows is essentially an expanding sandal that allows children living in poverty to have sturdy footwear that grows with them, so they don't need to constantly replace shoes or end up barefoot. Kenton came up with this idea not in the boardroom of a major footwear company or while developing a business school case study, but rather while he was working as a missionary at an orphanage in Africa. Initially, he wanted to give his idea away. He went to all the major footwear companies we can think of, like Nike, Adidas, and Reebok. But when Kenton told them of his idea, they weren't interested and said, that will never work. This episode is a fascinating look into the mindset of an innovator as they go from an original idea in their journal to creating a value-added innovation. We also hear Kenton's thoughts on the differences between being a founder and running the day-to-day operations of a company, how being the underdog can actually be a huge advantage, and what to do when an idea you love just isn't working. I'll leave you with this quote from Nolan Bushnell. Anyone who's ever taken a shower has had an idea. It's the person who gets out of the shower, dries off, and does something about it who makes a difference. Please note that this interview was recorded remotely with Kenton, who is at Because International Headquarters in Idaho. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Well, Kenton, welcome and thank you for joining me today on Innovators on Tap. I am so excited to be here, Chuck. Thank you for the invitation. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to you. So now I understand you're from a a famous town called Nampa, Idaho. <laughs> I I think it's pretty famous. Uh, I don't know if anybody else would, but yes, I am born and raised right here in Idaho uh, from a small town called Nampa, and we are about uh, about 20 minutes from Boise. And uh, I love love being from Idaho. So, what was it like to grow up there? You know, it was great. I had two wonderful parents, a fantastic brother, just kind of a small town feel to it. It's interesting. We have a lot of people that will, are kind of moving to Idaho now. We're, we're experiencing some growth. But I still think so many people don't know 
how wonderful Idaho is. And, and I've gotten, I've gotten the wonderful chance to experience it my whole life and I'm never going to live anywhere else. I just am in love with Idaho and it was so fun to grow up here. Is there something about how you grew up or those like early experiences that you think shaped who you are today? Anything stand out? Mostly my family had a, had a huge impact on my life. Like we really pride ourselves on being uh, nice people and being helpful. I remember, so my dad is a, was a plumber. He, he passed away a few years ago, but loved his work. And he especially loved helping people. I remember whenever anybody called and, and maybe they couldn't quite afford something, or if it was like our pastor or anybody from church, dad was always going and helping them with, with their houses and doing things for free. And just like he, he loved to help. And that really got into into me, and it was just kind of the culture of our family, and just the just the way we grew up was was if someone needed help, you helped them. So I understand that you you got a degree in business and religion, and then you embark on a missionary trip to Africa. And what I'm curious about is when you first embarked on that journey. What were you thinking was your career path going to look like? It doesn't seem to me like at least initially, you were planning to become an entrepreneur. Correct. I was not planning on being an entrepreneur. I always thought to be an entrepreneur, you had to be, you know, Steve Jobs or, you know, just someone that's so visionary and huge. And and uh, I, I never viewed myself um, that way at all. For me, and I'll, I'll give you and, and your audience the behind the scenes view. So my plan was to follow my girlfriend to uh, Seattle, where, where she was from, uh, and to get married. And then right before graduation, uh, she broke up with me. And so my plans just got turned upside down. And so I, I looked at my life and kind of thought, what do I, what do I want to do now? Like, wh- who am I? You know, all, all those types of questions. And I just decided, you know, I've, I've always thought about being in the ministry and maybe I could live outside the U.S. and, and that could be my, my career. And so the, one of the main reasons I, I lived in Africa um, after college was to see if I could be a missionary. I missed Idaho. I missed my home. I missed uh, Wendy's. Like I missed uh, <laughs> everything so much that that after after traveling for a year outside the U.S., I just knew. I knew that I I couldn't do it, and uh, and so I, I got back home and and really my question became like, what could my mission be from here? So did you know at that point what it was, or was it later that the idea behind shoes that grow comes about? a surprising thing happened in Africa. I was in Kenya and I lived and worked at this orphanage right outside of Nairobi. So right outside the capital city and probably a few weeks into my time there, I'll never forget it. I was uh, walking with all the kids. We're actually walking to church. And as we were all walking together, it was this really hot day, this really dusty road. There was a little girl next to me and she was probably eight or nine years old uh, wearing a white dress. I'll never forget that white dress. And as I looked down at her um, next to me, I was absolutely shocked at how small her shoes were. Uh, and they were so small, she had to cut open the front. And it just stuck with me. And it, I, I started to look around kind of with, with new eyes. And I saw that so many of the kids had either no shoes or they would do this. They would cut open the front of their shoes. Later that day, I asked the director of the orphanage, 
you know, why do so many kids have shoes that don't fit? And he told me that more than a year before, they'd received a great donation of, of shoes and clothes and things, but they had not received any donations since then. Uh, and that they were a very poor orphanage and they, they really barely had enough money for food sometimes and they couldn't afford to buy the kids new shoes uh, every time their feet grew. And, and then he said, you know, and these are kids, like their feet are growing all the time. And right then and there in that moment, I thought, wouldn't it be nice if there was a pair of shoes that could adjust and expand their size? Wouldn't it be nice if there was a pair of shoes that could grow? It seems like that would make a lot of sense for these kids. And so I wrote it down in my journal, that idea for a growing shoe. And then when I got back home and I was really looking for something I could do to try to help, I, I went back to that journal, went back to that idea. And I thought, you know what? I I, I don't see anybody else doing this. And so I thought, you know what? I think I could jump in with this. I think this would be a way that I could help from right here at home in uh, Nampa, Idaho. It's just incredible how you saw that problem and then were able to go back later and, you know, accept the challenge that you were going to be the one to kind of go take it on. Um, you know, you've been quoted as saying that the design process was interesting because I'm not a designer. And I knew nothing about shoes. I was just a normal guy with an idea. So, you know, one of the things I've learned is that, you know, while experts can be helpful in many situations, they actually often get in the way of innovation because they know what's not possible. Do you think your, well, I'll call a non-expert perspective allowed you to see something that others couldn't? Yes. And, and, and that's a very accurate quote. Yes. I, I had never made anything, uh, much less shoes. I'm not an engineer. I don't tinker with things like nothing like that. So I was going into this really kind of blind. I didn't quite know what to do. And it's interesting you, how you phrase the question. So the, the very first thing I decided to do, I, I grabbed a few friends and then together, none of us had any experience making anything and, and especially not shoes. So we thought, let's just give this idea away. And so we reached out to every major shoe company you know, all the shoes that people are wearing, you know, Nike, Reebok, Adidas, Crocs, Toms, uh, all of those companies. I, I probably talked to like 30 major shoe companies and I didn't want any money for it or anything. I just wanted to give them the idea, you know, partner with them, something. I wanted them to, to help us make this happen. And everybody said no. And a lot of the feedback was, you know, this isn't going to work. Um, you know, it's not a good idea, you know, things like that. And, and through all of that, I never got discouraged. And maybe this is because I was not an expert, but to me, I saw it. I saw firsthand at that orphanage, I saw the problem and I knew this was a possible solution. And so maybe it was the non-expert uh, side of me that kind of just kept going and kept pushing, even when all the experts were saying, you know, no, we don't want to be a part of this. This isn't going to work. Yeah, so that's interesting. You know, one of the things we used to say is that it was a really good thing. We were relatively ignorant to the size of the problem we were taking on when we were building Cree, because if we would have known how hard it was going to be and how long it was going to take, I'm not sure we would have kept going. So I had one of the Cree founders say that was one of our competitive advantages, which is a different way to think about it. But I'm curious you know, you faced a lot of rejection. And although you had this great idea, when all the experts are telling you it's not going to work and they don't want to do it, my sense is, is that this happens over a relatively long period of time that you're facing this rejection. And for some reason, you keep going. 
one of the main things that I, I really don't want this to, to sound like a cliche. The, the, the kids that I got to know at the orphanage, uh, when I first went there, it was almost like a, uh, almost like a project. I wanted to see if I could be a missionary. I wanted to, you know, learn about Africa. I wanted to, like, I had these kind of goals and it was almost like a, again, kind of a project for me. But then as I was there, as I lived, you know, with these kids every day, they really became my friends. So when I got home and I was trying to work on this idea, it really was just a very simple equation for me. I was trying to do something that I thought would help my friends. It became so personal to me. And and that was really kind of my main motivation. I, I really thought a growing shoe would make life uh, at least a little bit better for them. I knew it wasn't going to solve all their problems, but I thought this is something I could do that could really, really help my friends. But I'll be honest, a little bit of motivation came after all the rejection. You know, I, I don't like people telling me I can't do something. And and so I, I wanted to, you know, prove them wrong a little bit or, or whatever. I just, I got a little stubborn. Uh, and then, like you said um, about your company, you know, if I would have known all the things that maybe needed to go into all of this for it to for it to work. Yeah, that that might have been a little daunting, but in those in those years when I was working on this, it was really very simple. It was just all about the design, you know, like we needed to make a design for how the shoe could grow. And then it was once we got the design, it was we need to make a prototype. Once we got the prototype, we need to get it tested. Like it was very much like one step at a time. And, and that made it easier for me. You know, I can completely relate. I always tell people that it wasn't till at the end of my time building Cree that I realized what we did because we were just focused on the thing that was in front of us. And if you solve that one, something else is coming and we didn't worry too much. We just did that. And I think it's part of the secret is it, it keeps you from being overwhelmed and it's just about solving that problem. So I, I want to switch gears a little bit because you know, a lot of people have great ideas, but they're never able to turn them into something real. And you've actually done it. So I understand that there are three dots in your logo represent the three big programs that you use to impact people. I think it's products, production, and pursuit. And if I re read the logo correctly, the dots go up and to the right and it indicates the upward positive cycle of innovation. And I just love this concept for your logo. But I'm curious... Where did it come from? Did you borrow it from somewhere else? Did it come to you in a dream? Did it evolve over time? I mean, if for someone who goes to Africa as a missionary, where does this very sophisticated view of innovation come from? Great, great question. Um, great noticing too. I have never had anyone ask me this question, uh, but yes, uh, we we designed the logo to to have those those three dots, and the, those refer to the three. P's, uh, as we would say. So yep, the products, uh, production and pursuit, and they kind of go up and to the right because we want to try to always be, be kind of moving forward and moving up. And um, the other fun thing about our logo, the word because is there in our logo. And that's actually my handwriting from my journal. That, that name came from uh, one of the lists that I had made when I thought, should I really jump into this or not? I started making these lists of reasons why I should jump in with this idea and really try to go for it and reasons why I shouldn't. And all of the reasons why I should started with that word because that word and that actual 
font, I guess, is my handwriting from my journal from uh, about, I don't know, 12 years ago, I guess. So it's, it's awesome to understand the story behind it, but I'm curious, you know, you, you have this, what seems like a fairly methodical way to think about innovation, right? Your three P's. So how does this evolve? Yeah, I'll, I'll say it didn't, uh, I didn't start with it. And this is something I love telling other people, especially those who are working on an idea um, or working with a startup themselves. We did not have everything figured out on day one. <laughs> you know, I just knew I wanted to make a shoe that could grow. And, and that was my main objective. Um, but again, I had a few of these seeds for for what else we could do if we got to that stage. And it's been really fun being in a position to to pursue some of those other things now. And and so once once we made our shoes and started getting them out there and and started to have some success with that part of our, our business, um, then we did look at, you know, how could we use production to bring as many jobs as we can, to bring as much um, empowerment as we can so people have even more opportunities to succeed. And now it's really fun that we're producing uh, 100% of our shoes are made in Kenya. I love telling people you don't have to have everything figured out on day one. Uh, we definitely didn't. And it was a mix of, you know, I, I kept reading, I kept learning, I kept pushing myself. Um, and then probably the biggest thing, Chuck, the people that I was able to surround myself with, literally every person on my team is smarter than I am, right? Like they they are so great. I have amazing people on our team. And I always took the posture of, I don't quite know what I'm doing and I need some help. You know, can you point me in the right direction? I, I've always tried to be good about that. So I'm interested, you know, you, you said that we love talking about innovative ideas and are excited to see what thoughts will lead to the next great product. And in my experience, most people think that just having the idea is good enough and they really don't worry too much about the how to create value part. And I like to use a Thomas Edison quote, which says that anything that won't sell, I don't want to invent. It's sale is proof of utility and utility is success. And my sense is it's pretty clear to me that you realize that the idea is nice, but it's not good enough. You, you have to have this really great product or what I would say you had to create utility. Was that obvious from the start or is that something that kind of you learned through the process? I, I really had to learn that. I, uh, uh, one of the mistakes I probably made uh, at the beginning was that I was relying too much on the fundraising side of things. When we first got started, our very first batch of shoes, and we made them for $17 a pair. And then I was uh, selling them. So part of our model is, even though we're a nonprofit, we get some revenue by selling our shoes to the partners that we work with. So I was making the shoes for $17 a pair and selling them for $10 a pair. My thought was, I'll make up the difference through, through fundraising. One of the best things to ever happen to our organization, uh, my, my best friend in the world, his name is Andrew, uh, he quit his corporate job to, uh, to come help me run this. And, and that was the first thing he, he did. He came in and raised our price to $15 um, and then has worked extremely hard to get our costs um, lowered. Uh, Andrew's business sense made an incredible difference where we needed our shoe program to, to be sustainable. We needed our shoe program to fund itself, to make money. Um, and literally, it, it's so fun. 
uh, our shoe program has been able to, to be so sustainable that it, it brings extra money into our organization. And that money has enabled us to start some of the new things that we're doing. And so it's, it's really a fun, sweet spot when you've got great utility, a great product that you believe in, and a great mission that you believe in as well. And we're very fortunate to be in that, that spot right now. Well, that's a great transition to um, a second question I want to ask you, which is, I believe your second product was called BedNet Buddy, which was a tent that kept kids who did not have homes free from malaria. And I think that you eventually shut down the production. And what I read was, is you said, we are committed to exploring innovative ideas for alleviating poverty. But if we reach a point where a product isn't going to do enough to reduce poverty, to be sustainable, or to help with long-term economic development, we aren't going to keep pursuing it just because the initial investment. Now, this is one of the biggest problems I think most people who pursue innovation have, which is not all the ideas turn out to be good ideas and they have a really hard time abandoning something once they get started. So how did you bring your head around to recognize that this wasn't going to work? And then what advice would you have for others who might struggle to admit that they, Hey, just didn't work and we got to move on. You know, it's, it's funny as you're asking this question, I'm feeling defensive and I'm feeling like, who, who says it's not going to work yet? You know, hey, we're still, you know, I, this, this is my idea and it's, it's uh, <laughs> I'm feeling all the feelings. I still am excited about this idea. Um, but we, we, you know, we raised support. We, we got to a point where we had a design. We made a few. Uh, we tested it. We thought that we got some good feedback. And essentially, we made a thousand units of what we call BedNet Buddy. We're still we're still getting feedback, but I but all of the initial feedback we received was that there were lots of problems um, with the design of BedNet Buddy, and so we have kind of put it on hold. It's just not it's not at a place where it needs to be. If this is a good idea, if there is some value here, if this could be a product someday that really could make a difference and and be valuable for for certain families. I don't think I'm the person who's going to solve the design challenges that we have. And if anything, Chuck, that, that was the realization I had to get to was that I, I can't fix this. And even though that's not easy for someone like me that can get really invested in uh, certain ideas that I have. You know, it's funny as I listen uh, to you describe it, it's pretty clear that it's still an idea that's very important to you. And, you know, I'll offer you just a, a small piece of advice when we were building Cree, we didn't have a lack of good ideas, but we had ideas that some were better than others. And I think sometimes what you realize is, is that which idea can you make the biggest impact with? And it kind of helps separate this concept of, but it's not a bad idea. And you're right. The problem you want to solve isn't bad, but you and your team are who you are. And is it more important to make the biggest impact or is it more important sometimes to chase that idea to where it might just not work in the end? I think when you get your head around this idea that it's about where can you best use your time and what are the best ideas, it starts to feel a little bit better and it gets easier to make some of those choices. Um, I appreciate that advice, and uh, it, it is it is slowly sinking in. <laughs> Although it's it's funny, now that we have this 
entrepreneurial program that we run as we as we help um, really early stage entrepreneurs work on their product ideas. I mean, this is the same advice I'm giving some of them, you know, like like these types of nuggets of wisdom I'm I'm disseminating to them. And sometimes it's like, oh, I need to to listen to that too. Like I, I'm I'm giving them this advice. I need to heed that as well. As you described that, I was thinking of a couple of things. One is, you know, the passion that makes you able to take on these challenges and push you through is the same thing that you're battling when things don't go as you want them to, right? So the two work against each other. And then you said a second thing, which is trying through your entrepreneurial program to help share wisdom. And, you know, I became a CEO of a public company at 34 years old. And as much as I thought I knew a lot then, it's only now, many years later, that I understand what wisdom was and what people were talking about. And, and it's a trick to kind of find that balance. You That energy and enthusiasm that helps you in one way is, you know, oftentimes makes it tough to listen to that advice from others. One of the tricks that we used to use is when someone was struggling to see someone, we would describe the problem in a way that it wasn't about them. In fact, I would sometimes ask the person to imagine they were helping me give advice to another person. And I would describe the exact same problem that was affecting them. And just pretending like it wasn't about them was often enough to get them to recognize a situation and help them see something that otherwise it just wasn't possible. So just as you, as you think about this, it's very common that you can give advice that's hard for you to take. The trick is to figure out how can you do that for yourself on a daily basis. And all I can say is, I was a CEO for a long time and I'm still working on it. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Yeah, that's, man, that's good. That's good. So, you know, your organization talks a lot about innovation, which is pretty rare in my opinion for a nonprofit. Is innovation in your mind more of a process or a mindset? That's a really good question. I think it starts as a mindset. I, I really do we are committed to doing this as well as we can. And that means we have to innovate. We have to find new ways. We have to keep improving. Um, to me, it starts with a mindset. Uh, but this is where my, my teammate, Andrew, and he, he's such a systems thinker. He's such a you know, behind-the-scenes details um, process kind of a guy that he really brought in the process. And so I, I see both. But I... I really do think it starts with a mindset. If you don't have a mindset of innovation, it's going to be really hard to, to do the processes. My personal belief is that it absolutely starts with mindset. As I like to say sometimes that uh, you have to start with a mindset before you try to use the tool set, because if you don't, the tools don't actually work. So let me switch gears a little bit. You were the founder and in my experience, starting a business takes a different skill set than running and scaling a business. So has it been difficult to transition to, instead of being the entrepreneur with the big idea, to having to be a, you know, a leader running an organization and, and really embracing these tools and things to make it better? Yes, one, 100%. <laughs> and, you know, our, our organization would not be anywhere near um, doing the things that we're doing today, having the impact that we're that we're we're trying to have, um, without my my teammate, my best friend Andrew, I 
was so happy to make the choice um, to put to put him in charge um, because I saw him and his skill set and what he's great at is uh, management and and efficiency and and running a team, running these systems, you know, keeping a pulse on our finances, our production with our shoes, you know, everything. Now, you know, could could he have been the 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 founder and and done all the things at the beginning and getting things going? I, I think he would even say he wouldn't would not have enjoyed that. Um, but even with that, I'm I'm very mindful that that I'm probably more of a classic founder and and that I even think in a in a few years, I uh, our organization might fully outgrow me. It's interesting you say that. So um, I was not one of the original founders of Cree, but I joined early on. And when I left the company a few years ago, it was a 31-year-old company. And three of the original five founders were still involved in the business. None of them in an executive role, but all of them in a role that still played to their strengths. And what I would just say to you is, is that I really can relate to the difference between the joy you might get from being a founder and and some of the challenges that come from running a business. You know, I went from six million to one point six billion, and it wasn't the same job, right? What I would encourage you to think about is that founders bring a passion and a sense of purpose and mission to a business that is always valuable in ways that's hard to describe. And so I've no doubt the organization could operate without you, but it wouldn't operate the same. And I think what you'll have to decide is, is that can you continue to evolve your role to be satisfied as a founder, yet still bring that passion in a different way? There's something different when the you're the guy that saw that girl in the white dress who needed shoes. It, it, it does bring something to the culture of an organization that I think you shouldn't underestimate. It's one of the reasons why so many companies struggle when the founder leaves. And it's not because the management isn't great. It's because they have a really tough time maintaining some part of that culture. And I was really fortunate. I got to be the CEO for a long time, but the founders kept me honest. And it was a really healthy relationship. It's nothing like having people that technically work for you, but they really don't. And when you're leading a larger organization, those are the most valuable people that you can have. And so just something to keep in mind uh, as you uh, as you think about your journey. Wow, Chuck, that was that was great. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm just just chatting with you over coffee or something and 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 you're you're giving me this great advice today. Thank thank you, really. I I probably needed to hear that today and and I, I appreciate I appreciate that very, very much. Well, we'll take look. The whole point of Innovators on Tap was to have a conversation. I'm learning every time I do this, and I think there's an opportunity for all of us to keep learning. And what I want the people listening to the podcast to realize is the challenge you're going through is a very logical and normal one, and it happens all the time. But there's not only one right answer. And I think there is a school of thought that says that sometime the founder needs to disappear and go away. But there's an equally, I think, valid school of thought, especially for something that is built around innovation. It's very hard for great managers to be innovative. They're two separate kinds of behaviors. And so when you have something built around these innovative concepts, the founders bring something to it that 
just keeps it fresh and alive. And I, that was my experience. And now that I've talked to more and more organizations, there's a common thread there. So I, I would just encourage you to keep that in mind. And honestly, I think that's the stuff that's the most valuable for the listeners is because I'm sure there's someone out there who's struggling with exactly the question that it's pretty clear you've been asking yourself. Yeah. Wow. I, again, I, I, I appreciate that. And, um, and, and even as I'm thinking about it now, uh, so, so last year we, we were trying to get this new entrepreneurial program, uh, called the pursuit incubator, where we, we come alongside other entrepreneurs, uh, around the world to just to try to help them with their idea. So as I did that, it, it was still under our organization, you know, it's a, a new program that we have, but I really felt last year, like I, I got to found something, uh, again, you know, I got to start something new and that was so fun for me last year, trying to start something from scratch and get certain partners together and, and put a program together. And, and it, it really was, was invigorating. And now as I look, as I'm kind of thinking about this, processing this now, looking back, like, yeah, that's probably because I was, I was tapping into that kind of founder stuff that I like to do. Um, but I got to do that as, as almost a uh, a, an intrapreneur, you know, within our organization, um, looking for ways to do new things, and so this is this I this is just great, Chuck. I'm I'm I am loving this conversation. I, <laughs> I'm learning a ton today. Thank thank you. No problem. You're helping explain the dynamic that I think is so critical. So I know that you recently started a new business called Grow Five, which I think is basically the same kind of shoe that grows but it's really for consumers that aren't living in poverty. Why did you decide to get into the for-profit shoe business? <laughs> Great question. Cause I never wanted to be, uh, <laughs> I, I literally said to, to Andrew and, and others, as we got this started, I said, you know, I just want to do this as a nonprofit. I want to get shoes to kids who are, are, are desperately in need of shoes to protect their feet. Um, I don't want to sell shoes to, to moms and dads, but, uh, our, our story uh, about five years ago, this was just a hobby. I had a few thousand pairs of shoes in my guest bedroom. Um, but then we accidentally went viral uh, with with a story online, and, and it, overnight things just changed. We had people emailing and calling asking if they could buy the shoes uh, for their kids uh, or, or or for themselves, and and we always said no, like that's not really what we do. You know, we we can't just sell you one pair or two pairs. But after a few years, we saw how you know just difficult it is to to fundraise and. And we thought, you know, if there are additional revenue streams that could help our cause, um, shouldn't we look into that? Um, so, but it's a separate company called Grow Five. The shoes that Grow Five sells are called Expandals, so expanding sandals. And then uh, we're so excited that the the sales, a portion of of every sale, goes right back to the nonprofit, and that's really the main reason we're doing it. So. You've talked a lot about practical compassion, and I had a chance to even hear a TED Talk you gave on the subject. Can you help our listeners understand a little bit what you mean by this and why it's so important to you? I love practical compassion uh, because I'm a really simple guy from a small town in Idaho, right? And so for me, practical compassion is basically just doing small things that, that can make a big difference. Uh, and our shoes are a great example of that. You know, our, our shoes, um, they don't solve every problem 
for these kids. Our shoes in many ways are not going to change the world, but can they make a difference in the life of a child in that family? Can they help a child be a little bit more healthy and attend school more often and be happier? Totally. And so practical compassion to me is is doing those practical, simple things that even though they're small, they really do make a difference. And, and sometimes I think we're, we're faced with this, um, I don't know, almost a choice of that, boy, you need to do something that can help uh, a, a million people and it's a perfect solution and it, it covers all the bases and it's a, a silver bullet that's going to solve every problem or you just shouldn't do it, you know? And it's like, no, I, I really think that if there's something you can do to help somebody, something practical, something simple, um, jump in and do it. Now that is great perspective and, and honestly, even better advice. What is your biggest failure? I'll, I'll give a real honest answer. Um, just, just a few months ago, we had to, to let somebody go because we, we had a good year last year, but, but we didn't meet our projections. And that experience, that that um, feeling, that reality that someone who is so, you know, uh, close because our, our, our team is very close and it, it was just, it was just uh, obviously so much worse for them. You know, I, I, I wasn't, I don't want to make my feelings the, the, the biggest feelings, you know, it, it was very difficult for them, obviously, but I, as a, as a leader, I hated that. It was such I really took that hard. Still, still, I'm taking that hard, and um, truly, that's that's what I'm looking back as one of my biggest failures. Do you have any advice for people that hear your story and say, "Okay, I want to go out and make a difference"? One or two pieces of advice you'd give them? My biggest piece of advice, you know, it's it's not all fun and games. Being an entrepreneur, right? Being being a leader, you set yourself up for difficult conversations for, you know, difficult choices. And, and that's part of it. Just don't give up. I see so much value in forward motion. And again, I really believe small things make a big difference. If there's something that, that you see where you could make a difference, even if it's just for one person, jump in and do it. And if there's something that you're really passionate about, get started. That is awesome advice. Thank you so much for being on the show. I, I just want to say that the work you're doing is absolutely incredible and that I'm so intrigued by the product that I ordered myself a pair of Expandals from Grow5 and I am really looking forward to trying them out myself. So I wish you the best of luck and I hope that anyone who's listening uh, looks up what you guys are doing and hopefully gets involved. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Chuck. Wow. I will make sure that those get to you right away. <laughs> Thanks so much, Chuck. Thanks to Kent and Lee for joining me on Innovators on Tap to discuss the shoe that grows, Because International, and Grow 5. Kenton's story is a great example of the power of getting your hands dirty. He said, I never got discouraged because I saw it. I saw the problem, and I knew this was a possible solution. When people get stuck, it's often because they are too far from the problem. So if you're stuck, I encourage you to be like Kenton. Go investigate the details. Get as close to the problem as possible 
And once you see it and it becomes personal, you're much more likely to find a solution. Because when things get personal, things get done. If you found value in this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues, because I think we all know of things that could use some innovative thinking. Please feel free to contact us through our website at innovatorsontap.com. We're always open to new ideas or critical feedback. My belief as an innovator is anything you do today can be done better tomorrow. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Let's go change the world.